Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We look at this history that we see how far we've come in a hundred years, how far we have left to go, that we can examine how we got to women's suffrage with open eyes and look at the struggle that took place, that these women that we've built up as heroes were part of a movement. And it is our job not to break the chain, that we are still a part of that story and we are still responsible for the progress they made and for continuing that progress into the future. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. Beth might sound a little different in this episode because she is in Aunt Blistem zone in Chicago recording remotely. 
which is a good segue to when we talk about the Democratic Convention, because everything will be remote. Tell the people where you are, Beth. Yes, I'm at my sister's house. She just had her first baby, my niece, Eliza, which is the only thing I will speak to you about if we are talking anywhere but this podcast. And Mm. I got to sit with her and hold her this morning. So thanks for your patience with my audio. I'm just so delighted that I was able to be here with them. And I really appreciate being able to do what we do on the road. Before we get started, we will be watching Vice President Joe Biden's acceptance speech Thursday night, 10 p.m. Eastern on Hot Mic. It's really fun. You can watch along with us, watch our reaction live, join in the chat box. So we'll have links and more information about that. But if you want to join the Pantsuit Politics community in the finale of the DNC convention, join us over on Hot Mic. Okay, let's talk about the convention. It's coming up. Everyone is processing it a little bit differently because it is a little bit different scene. And Sarah, you were saying before we started recording that the two of us really had good timing on starting this podcast because we went to both the DNC and RNC in 2016 and may have witnessed the last iteration of conventions as they used to be. Yeah, I mean, look, did this format need some shaking up for a while now? It did. It did. Is this the best case scenario for reinventing a (laughs) political convention? Probably not. You know, the excitement of conventions past really is about the crowd. Now, some of that excitement is uh, people chanting Bernie when Hillary's trying to speak, not the kind of excitement we're all looking forward to. But, you know, there's just something about the crowd size. There's something about, you know, the roll call vote when every state stands up and pledges its delegates. I'm really glad we got to witness to that. It's definitely not going to look like that this year. And the first question is, well, what will it look like? I, you know, I think it was really interesting um, to hear some of the people in charge say, like, we, you know, we don't want it to look like a telethon. We really need to be careful. I think they're probably going to have a bigger audience because there's not that much original content out there right now. But I think it will be interesting to see what it looks like this year. And I think it will be interesting to see the impact of this very different format on years to come, because I think it's unlikely we'll just return to the old way of doing conventions. And I hope we don't. I think we, you know, the best case scenario is to use this to reinvent and add energy and rethink some of the processes. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll all be tuning in. And then as this episode comes out on Tuesday, we'll have Bill Clinton. We'll have AOC. I'm kind of excited. Look, I like it when we shake things up a bit. And that's definitely what this is going to be. There are two things about this that feel very right to me, COVID aside. Number one, the conventions as they existed were for a very small group of people. There were huge crowds, but as a percentage of the electorate, a very small number of people were really invested in the conventions. And so as more Americans get invested in politics, bringing that convention in a way that is designed for more Americans, not just you get to peek in at our group of people who came in person, feels really good to me. The second thing I like about it, this convention in particular is being designed to represent the giant group of interests the Democratic Party is currently holding. You have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders all the Mm -hmm. way to John Kasich. And while Mm -hmm. I understand the consternation about that from all corners, that is honest about this election. You know, it is a very honest portrayal of the strange coalition that has to come together if we do not wish for Donald Trump to be the president anymore. And so I am really looking forward to seeing how they programmed it. It feels very thoughtful to me and all the coverage it's received so far. 
And I think it should be, if not the new standard for what conventions look like, because who knows, a very interesting representation, almost like a time capsule for what 2020 Mm -hmm. is. The only thing I'm worried about is conventions do present a unique opportunity for activists, um, for activism to present itself, right? Like you have a long history of 1968 and even to a certain extent 2016 where you have people upset at how the process went coming to the convention floor and asserting themselves and saying, I don't like how this went down or in the case of 1968 protesting outside the convention. And look, you saw that even on the Republican side. You know, I was watching the the vote the suffrage documentary. And conventions played a huge part in that history as well, where the suffragists would come to the conventions of both parties and really assert their priorities and really make themselves heard. You saw it in the history presented of the ERA and Mrs. America. Like, convention floors play a role in party politics and party platforms. And I think the quote-unquote smoke-filled rooms of the past are important too, but that's not the only story of what happens at a party convention. And I hope that as we do take this moment to really reinvent it and think through a better way to hold these conventions, we don't lose that because it's really not just about the speakers. I do want to create those moments for a Barack Obama to stand up and say, there is no red America and there's no blue America and have those those um, moments where somebody shines through a speech. It's not that I think the speeches are important, but that party politics, that like on the ground, nitty gritty conflict, compromise conversation that happens at conventions on the party floors and just when people gather in big numbers. I like I don't want to lose that. I think it's really important. That's a super point. And the other downside that's related is that in order to do this well, it has to be very corporate. Mm-hmm. There has to be a coherent message that is kind of tightly controlled and polished. The time has to be very tightly controlled, even more so than at an in-person event. Uh, and so something is lost for sure in that shift. Hopefully more is gained than is lost in that shift. We do have a shift happening right now around the post office where I'm fearful that much more is lost than is being gained. Okay. I think this is really important. I agree with you. So let's cover where we are so far. Donald Trump appointed a new postmaster general, Louis DeJoy. No experience, didn't rise up through the ranks from the post office, as is usually the case with the postmaster general. Instead, is a massive donor to the Trump campaign, um, has investments in a private company that wants to privatize the USPS, stands to make a lot of money. Some real red flags. And if that wasn't enough, he gets in there and he starts messing with the process. He says that he's going to retire and has begun to retire sorting machines. There was a picture that went around the Internet of post office boxes being pulled up off the street and put in this truck with other post office boxes. They're sending letters to the Pennsylvania attorney general saying, oh, by the way, your ballots might not make it in time. Not to mention you have Donald Trump saying openly, oh, I'm not going to fund the post office because they want to use the post office to do mail-in voting. Okay, I'm, I mean, I'm glad he said the the quiet part out loud. Here's what I think the first thing that's getting lost in this coverage, Beth, is there's a lot of, oh, well, it has a budgetary shortfall. You know, you have people going out and buying stamps and trying to fund the post office. And I just think this very important part, which you've covered in detail on the Nightly Nuance of, 
why is there a budgetary shortfall? Because the post office is popular and it does a good job and it doesn't have a budgetary shortfall because it doesn't make money. Tell the people, give the people the information they need, Beth. Okay, well, let's just go way back to the Constitution for a second and recognize that we've had a national post office longer than we've had a constitution in America. Because the framers said, this is kind of how you have a country. You make sure that communication can flow among the states. And so the post office is in the Constitution. This is something we are supposed to have at a federal level. But for a long time, there has been commentary about privatizing the post office. Now, I personally believe that commentary comes largely from people who know people who stand to make a lot of money off privatizing the post office. But that's been an ongoing conversation forever. The really important thing to understand is that the post office gets almost none of your tax dollars. It makes its money through selling you services and products. It does that exceptionally well. It's done it exceptionally well, even as email has taken over. We get a lot less commercial mail than we used to. You know, a ton of what funds the post office is your junk mail. And we get mm. a lot of a lot less junk mail now because we get junk email instead, because people have environmental concerns about junk mail. And because during COVID-19, a lot of businesses just haven't been operational. In the early 2000s, Congress gets together, and you remember, we were fighting about the budget just all the time. Well, that's probably an evergreen statement, but we were really doing that in the (laughs) early 2000s. And Congress decides that the post office not only needs to be able to fund all of its operations, it also needs to prepay both pension expenses for people who retire from the post office and medical expenses for people who retire from the post office. Friends, I agree that we have too many unfunded pensions across the country that cause a lot of problems and that being fiscally responsible would have a plan to pay those. But estimating and prepaying all of those future pension and healthcare expenses is an unbelievable burden. And so when you hear the post office is going bankrupt, it is not because of its ordinary operating expenses. It is because of this draconian legislation Mm -hmm. that was pretty well designed to bankrupt the post office, best I can tell. And I think I'm a fairly reasonable person in reading things like this. Now, why would somebody want to bankrupt the post office if it has 91% approval ratings and it makes money? Probably because someone would like to sell the post office to a private company to run. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, America, the five alarm fire we should have been setting off about the post office was back when they passed this legislation in the early 2000s. And when this election is over, I hope we keep talking about this and we put pressure on our representatives to abolish this terrible legislation and take this burden off the post office, which we all love. But until then, yes, this is a huge concern because of mail-in voting. There's a part of me that's like, I think I think the reason I'm not fully freaking out is because it's August. And I appreciate the fact that this is a, f- a five-alarm situation with two solid months until the election. Nancy Pelosi has called the House back from recess to pass legislation. The Democrats have subpoenaed 
the postmaster general to come and testify before Congress. And you're even seeing concerns and pressure building from Republicans. So, I mean, I'm not full freak out because I don't think that they will be successful with this level of attention over two months. Not that I don't think we should pay attention. Not that I don't think we should do everything in our power to say this is unacceptable. Stop it now. In fact, why don't you go ahead and resign, Postmaster General? But, you know, this is like another example to me of the Trump administration, more strategic, better at using the levers of government administration, probably could have done some real damage. But they're always so ham-fisted, again, saying out loud, well, we're not going to fund it because we don't want mail-in voting, and doing it two months beforehand before where people can fully freak out. Like, there's just a part of me that's like, you guys are so bad at being evil. Not to mention that I think if I'm a candidate for president and I'm down in the polls and people are going to have more opportunities to vote early, I don't want to create a situation where they feel like they have to vote early, where I have even less time to convince them maybe I'm not the worst president ever. I don't know. I just... I think that we should pay attention. I think that we should demand change, but I'm not in full freakout mode quite yet. Well, there are a bunch of different things going on here, too. So there is the post office needing more money because COVID-19 has been hard on it. That's one set of issues, right? Mm -hmm. Democrats in Congress have been trying to get the post office the kind of relief that they're getting to lots of organizations because they've taken a hit from COVID-19 and what the post office is still delivering groceries, medicine is really important. So we're not making as much money as we once did off of, you know, coupon kind of mail, but we're delivering stuff all over this country that is desperately needed. And that is why the post office needs an infusion of cash. A separate but related issue is that state law governs how we vote. And a bunch of states have not ever really worked with the post office well enough to design a schedule for mail-in voting that ensures every vote will count. We have several states that are very important to the Electoral College that say under state law, if you are mailing your ballot in, it must be received by election day. Well, you have no control over when your ballot is received other than trying to think ahead and put it in the mail a few days early. But if you've got serious delays happening around mail, you don't really have any way as a consumer to know that that's going to happen, right? And so it's a better law to say the ballot has to be postmarked by a certain date, even if that date is a couple of days in front of the election, to know that you have control as the voter over the validity of your ballot, I think is important. But that is something Congress can't do anything about. Because right now, states control all of that decision-making. A lot of state legislatures are not in session in the summer. So it's really difficult with very little notice to redesign an election system to meet the moment, especially when that election system has been problematic for a long time. I read that that something like 80,000 votes in Georgia were not counted, 80,000 ballots in the primaries, because... They didn't arrive by the date needed to be counted in the election. So we have a serious problem here. And it is important and good that it looks like the House at least is going to come back and talk to the Postmaster General about it. But it's not one kind of problem. It's a lot of problems wrapped up around this one organization. And the other thing I just want to say about this that really bothers me 
from the administration. This is much like the CDC reporting data that we talked about a couple weeks ago. I am sure that there are aspects of the way the post office runs that do need a hard look at or that could be modernized or refreshed or made better in some way. You want to do that in the middle of a pandemic Mm -hmm. that puts the post office at the center of our economy and at the center of our democracy. You're going to just start changing things. You're going to let people see you pulling mailboxes off the street. Like the American people deserve a much better explanation of what's going on here than trust us, we're creating some efficiency. I mean, it's just, it is, even if you assume the best about their intentions, this is so unwise and so unfair to the public, which is already struggling to trust any kind of institution. Don't take the post office away from us. Like we felt pretty (laughs) good about the post office. So true. Well, it's like the COVID-19 data reporting. Why are you changing this in the midst of an emergency? Which we still have people raising red flags about that process and they don't think we're getting the complete information anymore. I mean, I mean, there's no concept of budgeting your political capital with this administration. Like just there's no concern for, is this a good time to do it? Can we do it well? Does this serve the needs and of the American people and our responsibilities towards them? Because it's, you know, the administration is a reflection of the priorities of the president himself, and the president's priorities are his own ego. I mean, there's just not much beyond that, I don't think. Well, and just no one in the administration is doing a good job of communicating transparently or openly with any kind of realism with the American people. You know, I keep thinking about this. Well, he is. I mean, he told us why he wants to do it. (laughs) You know what? I will give him that. You're right. He gets some marks for transparency, but the postmaster general should do a lot better than these memos in explaining why these changes are being made. It reminds me of, I have been so, as many of us have been kind of, um, despairing about the fact that we're not ready to safely open schools because our entire economy needs that. And I so wish that back in March, someone had said, you know what, America, we're going to have two really weird years. Adjust your expectations. This is just going to take a while. We're not going to measure it in weeks. We're not going to talk about, oh, let's see what the data looks like in another five days. It's going to be weird for a while. Buckle up. And I think if back in March we had said that, then we could have said, all right, we got a really important election coming up. How are we going to handle it? Let's look at all the layers of this problem and see if we can solve it. And some people have been there working on it, but not enough and not enough to create the kind of political will that you need to do the really big things that have to be done at both the federal and state level to actually make an impact. We do have a small amount of good news, Beth. In this cacophony of bad news. <laughs> did you hear about the spit test? I'm very excited about this. I did. I did hear about the spit test. I think it's really important that we have more rapid testing, inexpensive testing available for people all across the country, not just people attending cool house parties or going to the White House. And so I think the spit test being widely available is really good news. So it's a partnership with Yale and the NBA because the NBA was like, we got money to throw at this and we need a solution. Thank you, MBA. 
William B.A. come out as the one of the heroes of COVID. We're going to talk about calling people heroes in just a second. But between their canceling the season and now Sliva Direct, which got its emergency authorization from the FDA. So hopefully um, that will be available soon. I think that that I think it's really good news. I think the better, quicker, more affordable tests we have so that we we're not always in the dark about you know, people coming back to work or kids coming back to school and who has it. My friend was like, just think about the school nurse being able to be like, oh, do you? Okay, good. We have it. We have our results. We know the answer. Let's adjust accordingly. So that's positive news on the COVID front. Speaking of heroes and calling people heroes, we got a message from a listener we wanted to share about why frontline workers, healthcare workers do not want to be called heroes. This listener is a physician, knows lots of heroes says, probably I should only speak for myself, but here it is. We don't like being called heroes one minute and then the next being lied to about whether or not you have had COVID exposures or symptoms when you come to see a doctor, thus exposing and endangering every member of the medical staff who didn't know to put on the correct level of PPE. Being accused of being part of some big conspiracy related to the virus or vaccine or generally being told that the years we have invested in understanding complex scientific concepts like virology and clinical trial design are of no worth to you because you did some research on the Internet that says something different than what we and the majority of the medical community is saying. Being complained to about wearing a surgical or cloth mask for the few hours or minutes you are in our office, while we have been wearing one day in, day out, along with goggles and gowns and tight-fitting N95s. Being asked to write letters to excuse a perfectly healthy person from mask wearing or a letter to clear someone for activities following COVID exposure because of some special circumstances they think should exempt them from CDC quarantine guidelines or basically any letter that gets people out of something for the safety of public health that inconveniences them. Being told that someone will comply with the quarantine guidelines that you carefully deciphered and explained to them only to find out that they've actually gone out and created a super spreader event. Being yelled at for not treating someone with the right medicine, even though there's absolutely no evidence behind it. But they read about it on the Internet and famous people got it, so they must just not be important enough to get it. Going out in the community to see the majority of people maskless and completely ignoring social distancing or wearing their mask around their neck or making a public display of how the mask ordinance infringes on their personal freedoms. Seeing friends who have posted all about how grateful they are for healthcare heroes, now posting photos from 200-person weddings with maskless dance floors. Being expected to know answers to impossible questions, and then when we make our best attempt at answering those questions, being dismissed because people don't like the answers. We are just so tired. I am sure that there are many people who can relate to that and so appreciate our listener sharing it. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about the suffrage centennial. But before that, we wanted to share beloved listener Liz's reflection on what suffrage means to her. Hi, everyone. This is Liz, and I'm a Pantsu Politics listener from outside of Philadelphia. And I'd like to share with you a little ritual that I observe every election day. So a few years ago, I had this realization that both of my grandmothers were born before the passage of the 19th Amendment. And it really reminded me of the fact that I live in a much more equitable world for women than my grandmothers were born into. And so in commemoration of that, whenever I go vote, I wear one of my grandmother's vintage brooches. And it 
feels like I am bringing her into the election booth with me. And it reminds me that the world that I live in was made possible by women who came before me. And it really focuses me on the responsibility that I have when I step into the election booth, that I have a responsibility to the generations that come after me. And that while the world is more equitable for me than it was for my grandmother's, there is still a lot of work to be done for inclusion and equity, and that I have the responsibility to fight for that. So I'd like to propose that we in the pantsuit politics community each come up with some kind of a special ritual or commemoration around voting. Maybe it's lighting a candle before you fill out your mail-in ballot, or maybe it's listening to the Hamilton soundtrack as you're taking your mail-in ballot to the mailbox. Maybe it is wearing an heirloom piece of jewelry to connect you with generations that came before you. Whatever that is, I would just like to propose that we, in the absence of being able to have election day barbecues like they have in Australia, which I have been able to stop thinking about, um, that we as individuals treat voting like less of a chore that we have to somehow fit in between going to work and picking up the kids and grocery shopping or whatever it is that we need to do, but really allow that to be a moment in our lives where we slow down and we stop and we reflect on those who came before us and those who came after us. Keep it nuanced, y'all. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. Sarah has been very excited about the suffrage centennial. Let's just not pretend that there is an equality of enthusiasm here because Sarah, this is really your jam. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So today, August 18th, is the 100th anniversary of Tennessee becoming the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment. We have that wonderful moment where the mother sends the letter to her son and says, basically, do the right thing. And he changes his vote. And it's all very dramatic. We didn't really expect Tennessee to be the 36th state to ratify. That was not friendly territory. But we did it. We fought hard. And women received the right to vote. Oh, so I love it. I love those historical moments. I love the, you know, it's we're celebrating one moment, but the fight for suffrage was years before this 100th anniversary and for black women and black men and and people of color, it was years after this. You know, this conversation about the post office, I think is a good reminder that universal suffrage is so essential to our democracy, and it is a story that never ends. It is a fight that never ends. It is deserving of our devotion and attention and vigilance. And so I think really leaning into these historical moments and reminding ourselves of this story of universal suffrage and how it is ongoing is is more important than ever. If you're confused about the dates, because there will be a Women's Equality Day next week, that is the day that the 19th Amendment became certified. So ratification, then certification. And why not observe both dates? I was just going to say, especially if you share Sarah's enthusiasm about all of this. <laughs> yeah, and this is like, this, this is the drama day. Like, there was no drama when we go to the Secretary of State and we sign some papers. I mean, I think the certification date is important. But I think the ratification where you have, you can just see them all there. They're all in Tennessee, except for Alice Paul, who's back in D.C. But, you know, the, that this is the moment. This was the culmination. So anyway, this is important history. And so we called in some experts to help us with this important history. 
We have Dr. Betty Collier-Thomas, and we're going to let her introduce herself. Well, you can start off uh, introducing me as um, Dr. Betty Collier-Thomas, and then you can refer to me as Betty. I'm a professor of history, and of course, I specialize in women's history, politics, religion, but primarily in African-American in all of those areas. We also have Ellen Goodman and Lynn Schur from the She Votes podcast. They are both veteran journalists. They have lots of expertise. You can hear all about their careers if you listen to She Votes, and they're going to tell you about that podcast briefly here. The podcast is eight episodes. Uh, It's called She Votes, uh, Our Battle for the Ballot. And we tell the suffrage story um, surrounded by conversations Ellen and I have about when we covered uh, what was then the second wave of feminism and how so much of what we covered in the 70s and certainly 80s is connected to what these women did in the 19th century and early 20th century. So it's episodic in that we tell the story. We have some fabulous characters, some you've heard of, some not. Um, Sojourner Truth, uh, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, all sorts of people. And then a bunch of people you never heard of, and we're not going to tell you any more, <laughs> but the name to keep in mind is Feb Byrne, F-E-B-B-B-U-R-N. And she is the unsung hero of suffrage. Oh, so I can't wait. We tell a lot of stories. Yeah, we tell a, we tell a lot of stories. Uh, we've interviewed a number of extraordinary um, historians uh, and activists to talk about these issues. And as I said, we we do a little reminiscing ourselves and have a pretty good time doing it. So, a really important part of this particular centennial is paying attention to the stories we tell ourselves about suffrage. And I think, you know, that's why She Votes is so fun. Let's let's work through this history. Let's figure out what we've gotten wrong in the past and and really rewrite these stories so they're more accurate. And I think that's why Betty and her work is so important because black suffragists were left out of this narrative and were left out of the research for so long. I discovered a whole world that I did not know existed that was not in any of the textbooks that I mm. was not taught in high school, junior high, or any of those places. You were taught nothing about African-Americans and where African-Americans were discussed, it was only as an enslaved people. Hmm. And so that was the extent of my learning and most persons. So they did not know this. So that's where I began. And so when I completed that dissertation, I already had a world of material and saw things that I wanted to work on beyond that. And so I continued then to, um, to do research in those areas. And then as microfilm became available for a few of the national black newspapers, I started indexing them for a number of things. And so I came to amass all this material, and now I have an archives in my house of primary sources mostly, um, covering 
450 square feet of my house. So as we think about the big picture of how we got these rights, the fight that long predated this anniversary, um, here are Ellen and Betty talking a little bit about the people who really contributed so much to this movement. Well, first of all, I was a history major in college, never learned anything about suffrage lord (laughs) there were there was no women's history major there was no women's history minor there was no women's history so for me the expansion has been in many steps and each step of it has been just terrific because uh, while we knew about susan b anthony elizabeth katie stanton as we entered the second wave of the feminist movement um we didn't know about the black suffragists and that whole area of the women who uh, the black suffragists has expanded hugely in like the last 10, 15 years. Well, I would I would add to what Ellen said that um, I distinctly remember in uh, when I was in junior high school, which, of course, you all now call middle school. Um, but when I was in one of those grades, I distinctly remember picking up my history book and there was a little cartoon of silly looking women. And the caption was, and then a bunch of crazy ladies and bloomers ran around trying to get the right to vote. That was it. That's what we learned about that. And um, so the expansion, as Ellen said, it really started when we were uh, in the 70s and both of us were journalists and covering this new thing called the Women's Liberation Front and then the Women's Liberation Movement. And learning about these women was just eye-opening, absolutely extraordinarily eye-opening. And and I, I must say, I did know a lot about a number of the African-American um, suffragists. I don't think what we appreciated at the time was the depth of the interest within the African-American community at the time. And I would say another big change in terms of how we look at the history now is that for a long time, it was sort of thought that 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention, was really uh, when it all began. And in fact, because the suffrage movement grew out of the abolition movement, the move to abolish slavery, you have to set it a little bit earlier. And And there was a very significant meaning in 1837 of the female anti-slavery societies, uh, female anti-slavery society, because the men wouldn't let them into the regular anti-slavery societies. And this in 1837 was an interracial group of women who really for the first time started talking about political rights, not the right to vote, but but the idea of sort of being out in public and, and making their voices heard. And then over the years, that sort of uh, kept going. And then, of course, 1848 at Seneca Falls was the first time publicly in a public convention that women uh, demanded the right to vote. And we also didn't know much about the racism within the movement, the racial divide. We knew a lot about the gender divide. We knew how men opposed the right to vote. And there's this amazing thing that you don't think about it, it's so obvious, which is that in order for women to get the right to vote, they had to convince men to vote for it. (laughs) So they had to convince the people who were empowered to share that power. And that is really an extraordinary thing. That's why it took 72 years uh, to do that. But we also didn't know. Hey, Ellen, hey, Ellen, I got to interrupt. Do we think we haven't come up with a word to describe that. Is it irony? 
Is it annoyance? Is it frustration that women have to ask men to give them the right to vote? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's bizarre when you think about it. And of course, it, 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 even the way Lynn said it, you know, um, people often say, well, in, in uh, 1920, uh, women were given the right to vote and they were not given it. I mean, they struggled, they fought, they lobbied, they paraded, they did everything to wrench the right to vote out of the hands of people who opposed it, really. And one of my favorite moments in our conversation with Betty was how the Black church and what she calls church suffrage was so important to the beginning of black suffrage. And I just think about these institutions. I think about the church, women gaining power within the church and then saying, we want to vote here. And this also means we want to vote elsewhere. And I think about education and how women became more educated and they thought, no, I want to participate in the world. And I thought this story she shared was so fascinating. The church, the African-American church. Uh, was the center of mm. African-American life. And so when you begin in, in, in the period, the antebellum period before the Civil War, you see the meetings, the conventions, the debates over race, the debates over um, how to end slavery. And, and you see also, you see also discussions here and there about women, but it's women who are beginning to argue for religious suffrage. Hmm. Now, the majority of the congregants in most Black churches were women. And it's the women with their fundraising and everything else that helped to build the very churches that they were not allowed to serve on a trustee board. They were not allowed to vote. They were permitted to raise money, fundraising, and serve in missionary societies. Mm -hmm. And so those women then pursued first the vote in their churches. Wow. So I talk about um, religious suffrage and political suffrage. We know a lot about many of the white women who worked for the vote. Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, like the women that we tell stories about with Seneca Falls. But unfortunately, we don't know enough about the black women who really advanced this movement. And here's Betty talking about that. As long, And then after you hear Betty, you'll hear Ellen and Lynn. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, um, bar none, was the major Black woman involved in suffrage and in pushing back on the racism in the, in the women's suffrage movement and pushing back on Black men where they excluded Black women and where many of them in the 19th century did not think women should have the vote. Um, Of course, they changed uh, later as you move into the early um, 20th century. And they changed primarily after Black men, as we know, were disfranchised in Mm -hmm. the 1890s. And so 
they saw if women gained the vote and if African-American as a part of the definition of women, then that could change their status. Mm -hmm. You see, the doors could open. By now, everybody knows the story, which now we know is largely a myth about what happened at Seneca Falls. Also, we know, we know also about uh, that first meeting that these women suffragists um, held, the AERA meeting, the American Equal Rights Association, and the whole debate about the 15th Amendment. And should Black men be able to vote before women, which the 15th Amendment was the issue. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, that caused a whole split there between the women arguing for suffrage for women. And of course, the, um, the whole discussion too about the position that Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, and Lucretia Mott took on that issue and how nasty it got mm-hmm. in the debate, uh, how nasty it got, uh, particularly with some of the things that Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, articulated um, and, and, and suggested that were racist and that why should these uneducated people be able to vote before us. And she was, the us were white women, educated white women, you see. And of course, Douglas's retort was that if you're talking about women, black women, you have to understand they're black. And when they come and, 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 and they hang, you see women hanging on the lampposts just like black men. It's because they're black, not because they are women. And so that becomes a raging issue and, and split the whole um, uh, movement. And of course, black women then um, were, were literally pushed out of that mainstream movement. There were, there were, and when I say black women were pushed out, I'm talking about the majority. Um, and the majority were offended by those kind of statements and, and all that was going on. Well, they began indeed as a line since suffrage grew out of the abolition movement in the North. And the big split came in the fight over the 15th Amendment. And that, of course, was the amendment that the 14th, 13th Amendment, of course, freed the, uh, the enslaved people. The 14th Amendment made them citizens. The 15th gave uh, African-American men the right to vote. States were no longer to discriminate on the basis of um, race or previous uh, servitude, et cetera, et cetera. But it was only the guys. It was only the men. And this this was a big breaking point in the movement because um, a number of African-American women said, you know, we care that someone in our community gets the right to vote and we will stand behind our men. It's okay with us we can wait. Uh, Other African-American women, and there were some, and um, a lot of the white suffragists said, wait a minute, 
we've been working all along with our black sisters and our and our black brothers in freeing the slaves. Why in the world should we step aside and let them let the men go before us? Um, this was a big split. And part of what it did, even after people made up after the split, the suffrage movement split. There were two different organizations. It took a while to get back together. The big thing that was lost at that moment was that originally um, the move for suffrage, like the move for abolition, was about full human rights for everybody. After this uh, 15th Amendment imposed on them, imposed on all of us by the white men in Congress, suddenly what, the, what one group of suffragists said was, we are only going to work for the vote. We are not now going to look at the whole picture. The vote is just too important, and we're going to go that way. And I, that offended a lot of African-American women, and they said, wait a minute, we're looking at the whole picture. You can't exclude us. Nobody was excluding them on purpose. It was that they were focusing on the vote. And, and that wound up being um, probably one of the reasons why, that, why there was an even much worse split later on around the turn of the century. And I think you see in that time sort of that I feel like in, in many points and inflection points in women's history, they struck a devil's bargain with that cult of womanhood. Well, we need protections and, and labor laws because we are we are in need of protecting in ways men aren't. Or you hear it in Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Well, we deserve to go first because aren't we morally of more value than as 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 women because women are more moral and more value driven. I mean, it's like they they kind of like they trafficked in this stuff. And that same sort of value system that was holding them back at certain points to try to to try to gain those successes. And look, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not trying to say, well, I'm not in ever at any point in my life trying to criticize people that lived in a time I can't even fathom. But it does seem like they, especially when you when you see those splits, that all of a sudden this cult of womanhood that could be really oppressive was used as a currency to try to prove their point. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a bit of a classist, if you will, mm-hmm. an elitist. Her real argument was educated. She thought educated people should have the vote first. And that was a thing that was going around at the time. There was a whole movement for educated voting. Um, but the Stanton could go off that way. Susan B. Anthony went back and forth on this women as the moral compass of society issue. For a long time, she said it didn't. Then she said it did. I think the truth is Susan would have used any argument yeah. at some point just to get the vote. And who could blame and, her? Um, I think you, yeah, and who could blame her? But Sarah, you're right, Sarah, that you can't go down that road and then say, wait a minute, um, that, that's really not what we were talking about. But they did. And I think there were compromises made in the interest of politics. They were made on all sides. And that's politics. And let's remember that the political compromises around the 15th Amendment were basically to appease Southern white former Confederates. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. that was the that was the problem with the whole white supremacy as it emerged after well, all the way through. But as it reemerged after the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. And basically, they were afraid of uh, white, of black women adding to the roles, of women adding to the roles, but of black women adding to the roles in the South. 
and uh, upending white supremacy. And there were several really fascinating quotes of people who really thought that black women were the strongest and uh, uh, potential voters and would undo um, white supremacy, which hopefully <laughs> we're hoping for that now too. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's still, it's still going and on. also, and, and the flip side of that, there were African-Americans after the war who were afraid that by giving all women the right to vote, the white women in the South would upend the effects of the Civil War. Oh, that's so all these right. right. So and nobody, by the way, nobody really has real numbers on this. They just didn't exist. We know that there were, you know, we know approximately how million enslaved people there were, but we don't know how many white women voters there would have been. It's 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 all guesswork. But that was another thread that was going along. Wait a minute, if we give all women the right to vote, then the white women in the South will well, uh, you know, put an end to everything we just fought for. And who, and exactly, and who, who benefits while we're all debating that? While we're distrustful of one another? The white men, the white yes. men in Congress. While we're all fighting over who has it worse, who's winning? Come on. It's so frustrating. And it seems yeah. to happen over and over and over in history. And can we, can we just put in a, a word here for the fact that what Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and many, many others originally and for a very long time forever were really looking for was something they called universal suffrage. Mm -hmm, right. They believed that suffrage should be tied to citizenship. If you're a citizen, you can vote, period, end of question. It would have made Jim Crow laws a lot harder to enforce. Yep. It would have made all that voter suppression stuff almost impossible. And people who were citizens would have had the right to vote, forget states' rights, that would have been wonderful. Still, by the way, would be, but we don't have it. We're not dealing with race, in other words. We're dealing with women. But the problem was, with Black women, they, can, they could not and they cannot separate mm -hmm. themselves as just being women from being black women, because Douglas was absolutely right. And I always tell my students, I said, um, in America, in the America that I live in now, most people, the first thing they see when they see me, they don't necessarily just see a woman. They see a black woman. They see me as black first. Hmm. They don't see me as Dr. Kaya Thomas. I'm a black woman. Okay. Or mm -hmm. I said to them, I'll give you an example that was really funny. I don't know if you recall when Tiger Woods said that, you know, he, he wasn't just black. He was a Cablinasian. Mm -hmm. And I recall going to class that particular day and I said to my students, I told them, um, stimulating them to read more, of course, every day. And I said, do you know what a Kablanation is? They said, no. I said, well, he defines himself as Caucasian, African-American, Asian, because his mother is of Asian um, descent, Black, I was for Native American. 
And so he was saying he was a combination of all those things. But the majority of African-Americans in this country are mixed people. And they're mixed because of all the rape that occurred of, of, of enslaved women um, and women afterwards. And all of these children that were produced. And of course, they mixed with um, Native Americans and there were Asians and so forth. And so I said to my students, I said, well, you know, in America, you can define yourself any way you want to. But really, when the rubber meets the road, you're just black. I said, mm. if he is in the South that I grew up in part, I grew up in Jim Crow segregated America. When he's not on that golf course, and if he travels down to some of those little towns, and that was before he became famous, famous, but he was famous, okay? And I said, when those people see Tiger Woods and he's just wearing something, whatever, they see a black man. Shortly after that, I recall all the news about, you remember MC Hammer? MC mm -hmm. Hammer was in Atlantic City and he had on one of those kind of, um, I forget what we call them now, what he was dressed in. He was going up an uh, escalator and someone called him an N. Mm. They didn't see and recognize him as MC Hammer. He was just another black man. Okay. Mm. And, and so I tried to explain to those students that you can define yourself in any way you want to, but in America, you are simply a black person. On Pantsuit Politics, I think we talk a lot about there are really no new stories <laughs> in our headlines, be they conspiracy theories or voter suppression. You know, voter suppression is not new. Fighting voter suppression, fighting for suffrage is as much a part of the entire history of the United States as is this fight for democracy because they go hand in hand. And when you talk about suffrage and the suffrage movement, it, you have to talk about um, many cities and states where you had um, um, women's suffrage groups. The point is you were excluded from those movements. So it wasn't a question of you fighting within the system. It was a question of if you want the vote, you organize your base and you fight for the vote and you fight to be a part of that when it comes to fruition. Because what you want is not necessarily just to be functioning in a suffrage organization, and I mean a suffrage club in New Hampshire or a suffrage club that's all white in Maine or in Indianapolis or some other place. Um, you want the vote. 
in the same way they are fighting for the vote. So what you do is this. You organize your troops and yourselves all over the country and through your separate groups because you don't have a choice. And you teach your, your people, and when I say your people, other women, the meaning of what it is to be a citizen, the importance of the vote, and why they need the vote, how to get out the vote. You go and you go to those polls, whether or not they say you can vote or not, you keep pushing and pushing against the gates, but meanwhile, you keep up and you stay in the fight. In the civil rights movement then, when we say the civil rights movement, actually African-Americans were fighting for a civil rights. Um, going back to the antebellum period, you had a large free black community, primarily um, centered in the North and in the, in the West. And they were pushing for civil rights, uh, black men, and they were pushing for the vote. And of course, black women had their associations. And in some cities like Philadelphia, they might have an integrated um, suffrage group. But mm. they were pushing against the barriers. So, for example, women gained the vote in, for example, the Midwest and in the West and some places in the North long before the ratification and the passage of the 19th Amendment. So they could vote. They could vote in municipal uh, elections in particular. And in a few states, they gained the right to vote in national um, elections prior to 1920. So you have different kind of patterns. Well, you had black women who voted in the West. You had black women who voted in some places in the North and black men too. Black men as free blacks who voted in some places, they lost that right. It was taken from them before you get to the Civil War. So you have all kinds of patterns. Now, the main thing that we tend to concentrate on, and in this period of time are concentrating upon, is the period from the 1860s up to 1920s, when it becomes a real push hmm. for the vote, and particularly if women and the vote, particularly after black men gain the vote. Black men gained the vote, as we said, and many were lynched for trying to vote. They were denied the vote and what we call voter suppression today. All of the tactics that are being used today, um, with the exception of using the computer, <laughs> okay? 
those tactics are the same today. Shutting down polling stations, moving them at a distance, you know, um, stealing ballots and just destroying them. Everything you talk about Mm. now existed then. So there's nothing new about voter suppression. So we talked with Ellen about what three lines from the suffrage movement do they see coming into today? And I think that they were very insightful on this point. Well, you definitely see that women are not one voting block. In many different times in our history, we have the illusion that, that you know, uh, sisterhood is powerful. And we actually have an episode about taking on the phrase sisterhood is powerful because we have seen all the way splits among women. And we saw, to start with 2016, a plurality of white women voted for Trump. So there are all these women who have fought against their own rights, mm-hmm. incredible as that may seem to us, who, who fought against the vote. And you're looking for through lines. I can think, um, Ellen and I have giggled over this a lot. I, uh, I can think of no better example of how things in many ways have not changed. I'm going to give you two words, likability and smile more. Words. Yep. Yeah, these are things that were told to the original suffragists. Oh, they were so cranky. They were so ugly. They were the word they used was unsexed. Yeah. Take a look at the presidential candidates this year. Every one of them was told she needs to smile more. And what was her likability factor? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, I keep thinking about that brilliant moment, because I think this is relevant when you look at second wave feminism too, that brilliant moment in the new series, Mrs. America, about Phyllis Schlafly and the fight for the ARA, where Rose Byrne, as Gloria Steinem says, how long do we give people to adapt to change? And I wonder what the answer to that question would be if you, and I'm sure it would be different if you ask Susan B. Anthony, or if you ask Alice Paul, or if you ask just a suffragette from Ohio, you know, what is, what lessons do they have for us on that cultural argument. And do does change come after the fact? Yeah. Or before? Or yes. We yes. always, I mean, we're, we're constantly saying things like, well, the country isn't ready for a woman president or the country isn't ready to see women, you know, in the military or then they're not ready to have a toilet that isn't labeled male or female. But do you get, do you have to get ready before you have change, or does the change itself become normalized? And I think of, say, gay marriage, which the legal change in status, change attitudes. And with women, too, I think that has happened. Um, you know, when women were in the military, suddenly it becomes normalized. So and, but if and, you're constantly and, waiting for <laughs> the country to get ready for something, it doesn't. It often happens after the fact. And and the frustration, you were asking what would how would Susan B. Anthony and others have seen this? Susan B. Anthony had a uh, I can't quote it exactly, but had a wonderful comment after, uh, you know, this is a woman who started being a- active in her in her 30s. She died at 86, so more than 50 years. And at one point she said how frustrating it was to have to be beating on the heads of male legislators 
whose fathers and in some cases grandfathers she had already confronted mm. with the same argument. So she went all the way through it. And these are women who, for the most part, were already changed. They were there. You ask about change in society, and these women had made the change in their heads. Uh, they were hoping that society would come along, and they were pushing society to come along. And they were already there. Women, as usual, or I, so one group of women, was much more pro progressive than the rest of society. This idea that there are always people who oppose progress is a weird thing to give me hope, but it does. <laughs> that there were women who fought against suffrage. And we're going to hear Ellen tell us that it didn't change what happened once they received those rights as well. What's also so interesting, if you look at anti-suffragists, uh, we know of one woman uh, who was one of the leaders down in Tennessee for the final vote for ratification. We know that she did not then vote after women got the right to vote. She rather publicly said she was not going to vote. She did, however, apparently get someone in the legislature to vote for her, which was some way of, of flipping around the system. Mm. So uh, there you go for that. But really, seriously, all these people, all these women who, who um, lobbied against the right to vote for women, I'd be willing to bet you that most of every one of them went and cast her ballot right. when she got the right to vote. Yeah. And I think it's just the same today that all these things that so many women say they don't need and they don't want. When these rights become available, they take every bit of advantage of them. I think that the ending bits that we want to share with you as we close out this segment are really about a callback to our How to Be a Citizen series. That your vote matters. That all of the different types of work that went into the suffrage movement mattered that there are lots of ways to do your work in a democracy. And that is true about things as monumental as securing the right to vote. And it is true about things as monumental as ensuring today that those votes are counted. How do we walk that line? How do we make sure we're saying we have to celebrate how far we've come? We have to recognize all these victories or we're going to get burned out. And also we need to reckon with the humanity and the mistakes that were made in the movement, we need to recognize the battles we still have to fight. Like, how do we walk that line? You know, I've been quoting a lot um, of my dear friend, uh, the late Nora Ephron, um, who said at one point and, and then said it again, embrace the mess. Mm -hmm. There is a messiness here. And if we don't recognize it, accept it and embrace it, then we're doomed to repeat the mistakes all over again. Let's find out what was done wrong. Uh, let's look at it honestly. Uh, let's not look at it through shaded eyes. Let's see exactly what, what happened here, what happened there. Clearly, we are talking about a movement, if we're talking about the suffrage movement, that was as influenced by the, um, uh, uh, by the institutional racism in the country as anything was. Of course, of course it was part of it. But let's figure out what it really was. Let's figure out what mistakes were made and let's do better. And I think recognizing it and embracing it is um, are two of the first steps that we can take. I'd add that 
getting suffrage was not inevitable. Mm -hmm. I mean, young people today think that, of course, oh, was there a time when there wasn't suffrage? You know, of course, it was inevitable. It was not inevitable. So the tenacity of these women is something to celebrate. Nevertheless, she persisted. These women persisted. I mean, they really persisted against incredible odds, against going to, you know, prison and getting force fed, against uh, passing this baton from one generation to another. It took three generations to get it, to get suffrage. And I think that we have to recognize that, um, A, it's never inevitable, and B, it just requires generations of change ongoing change and working really hard at it. And this is another moment where I think people are really up for doing the hard work. We hear people say, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Oh, voting doesn't matter. That just is such a slap across the face of these women who did all of this work. And we also have moments in this story of suffrage where it was one vote. It was one vote in the state legislature in Tennessee in 1920 that finally passed the 19th Amendment. It was one vote, and there were other close votes. Getting the 19th Amendment passed in Congress was a minuscule close vote. Uh, your vote does count. Uh, it counted then, it counts now, and it will always count. And this is this is something we have to make people we have to help people understand. And we hope that when people listen to the podcast, that, I mean, we call it She Votes because we want every she out there to vote. Uh, we want every he out there to vote, of course, but we're, we're, we're working on women right now. And if I don't understand how you can understand the history of how we got the right to vote and not appreciate what a privilege, not to mention a right, it is and why you would possibly stay home. When you think of all the hard work that went into it, you've got to get out there and use that vote. They needed all the strategies. It mm. wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked just to do state by state. It wouldn't have worked just to do federal. It wouldn't have worked to do the tried and true, tried and true incremental change that the older suffragists wanted. It wouldn't have worked just to have the militant tactics yeah. of the Alice Paul crowd and all that, they needed all of it. People working inside the system yep. and people working outside the system. And you see that right now. You see the protesters working outside the system and you see the people in politics working inside the system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So we're in the middle of some struggles in the United States right now. And I hope that what we do is we look at this history, that we see how far we've come in 100 years, how far we have left to go, that we can examine how we got to women's suffrage with open eyes and look at the struggle that took place, that these women that we've built up as heroes were part of a movement They weren't working on their own and they made mistakes and they excluded people and they had their own weaknesses. And I think looking at that beautiful complexity and being inspired by their tenacity and realizing that it is our job not to break the chain, that we are still a part of that story and we are still responsible for the progress they made and for continuing that progress into the future. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, 
I've talked about my bathroom renovation before. It is or or was complete. And then we received some very unfortunate news that the flooring um, was installed correctly, but but there was a mistake made and an error that cannot be corrected without ripping up the entire floor and doing it again. Now, I could use this opportunity to complain and grieve and blame 2020 for continuing to be a, a real piece of work, 2020 or a real piece of work. But you know what's weird is that, you know, I'm kind of stressed about it. <laughs> But I also feel really zen. I think in a weird way, 2020, if it has not cured me of disappointment, it has dramatically adjusted my expectations. I kind of felt like this when our big family trip got canceled. I I expected to feel just devastated. And I kept waiting for it to come and it never did. And I think, you know, I've struggled in my life with I don't know if this is being an Enneagram one with just feeling like a sense of expectation that things should go right, that you should receive justice. And I don't know if I mean, I think I'd been doing work on myself overall. And I don't know if 2020 was just the straw that broke the camel's back. But I feel very like or maybe it's just being around you because I think you hold things loosely and you have a good reaction to stuff like this. But I just feel this this sense of, okay, well, it is what it is. It sucks. It's not the end of the world. I'm not owed anything, really. And I just thought I would share that instead of using this moment to (laughs) rage against 2020, I'm trying to say, you know what, girl, you're a piece of work, but I'm learning a lot from you. All I can think right now is the gif of Ron Swanson saying, I'm really proud of you. (laughs) Well, you know, I keep thinking my grandmother always says, like, people who grow up sort of cater to like they're just miserable because they expect the world to do that and I don't I wasn't necessarily raised like that but there there wasn't even continues to be not as much but definitely in my 20s into my 30s like I had this expectation of like no but things should go okay I don't know why it's not like I didn't experience uh, trauma or bad things happening and learned especially like through the shooting like no shit can go off the rails but I, I don't know if I reserved it for certain areas of my life that I, I just expected certain things, but I, I'm just releasing it. I think 2020 is like maybe it's it's this last 39th year before I turn 40 and the combination with 2020 and the pandemic and all these things like, you know, you just have such good perspective in the midst of something like this. And, you know, I'm just trying to keep my eye on the prize. I kept... <laughs> You always say I hold things loosely. And so all day yesterday in my head, I was singing, hold on loosely. Like I just had that so good in my head because I thought, you know, what am I going to do about it? Like it is what it is. It sucks. I don't want it torn up. I don't want to have like it. There's no doubt it sucks. But like in the universe of things that could suck, this is not so bad. Like my friend Laura says, if it's not a good time, it's a good story. And this is going to be a hell of a story. Remember that time we did a whole bathroom and then we had to rip the entire floor out? You know, this is very closely related to what's on my mind, which is there cannot really be growth when everyone's tired. 
I've just realized, like, I want us as a PNC politics community to sort of gather around and commit to prioritizing sleep right now. Because Mm -hmm. in every sphere of my life, it has become so clear to me that everyone is too tired for any growth. We are in a moment with such potential for all of us to experience the kind of growth you're talking about, but everybody's too tired for it. Mm. And so I really think if we could get some sleep and really work toward like good, healthy rest, whatever time of day that can come for you, however many hours you can get, I totally understand that there are aspects of sleep that are very privileged because some people are working lots of jobs, shifts all hours of the day. Like I, un- I, I also like that you take your moment after hanging out with a newborn to put this emphasis, <laughs> this emphasis on sleep. Well, I've been thinking about it because like we've been talking about the strategy for nighttime here because nighttime with a newborn is not different from the daytime, except that you are even more fatigued and mm-hmm. you have this expectation that you're going to sleep. Right. So we've been talking about the strategy of like tonight, maybe let's not expect to sleep. Our priority right now is feeding, whatever. But it, it's taken me back through like my entire journey <laughs> being here and how like sometimes we'll have a child get up in the middle of the night and have a tantrum and we'll want to like coach the child through the tantrum. Well, that is dumb because when you're yep. tired, you cannot grow. We can have the learning conversation tomorrow after everyone's rested, but not in the middle of the thing. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that's true about like, maybe don't write an internet comment while you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't study for a test when you're exhausted. Maybe don't send an email to a colleague when you're exhausted. Everyone's doing these things and it's making a very stressful time worse. And I just think if we could commit to some sleep around here, it would it would do the world a big service. My husband is very wise. And when we had newborns, he used to say, okay, fights in the middle of the night don't count. They just don't count. At 3 a.m. fights, you can't can't hold anybody responsible for what they say at 3 a.m. when they've woken up. And then when the pandemic started, he said, okay, COVID fights aren't going to count. That's the new rule. <laughs> COVID fights don't count. It's too much. We're all too stressed. We're adjusting. We're just not going to count it. And it's a good rule. You just got to, you know, I hope we can all. And I think we are. I think we're gr- like, I don't know if it's growth or just reality beating us over the head. Until, you know, I feel like a little bit, Oprah always says, if you don't listen the first time, like your body will use a nice or the universe will use a nice breeze to remind you. And if you don't listen, then it'll be a little push around. And if you don't keep listening, you're going to get a brick upside the head. And there's a part of me that's like, is our culture experiencing a brick upside the head moment? Like we are going to learn to adjust our expectations we are going to have to learn that. Like, that's what 2020 is teaching us. And so we can fight it. I mean, it's much like a newborn. I texted you yesterday, like, do not fight a newborn. You will lose. You will lose. Um, This is what I learned from three newborns. Like, all my worst moments as a parent were trying to get a child to sleep when they didn't want to sleep. You know, I think that that it's all sort of wrapped up in the same really Buddhist mentality, like hold it loosely, release your expectations. Like this is our moment. This is our moment to really embrace that. Maybe that's how we should sign off today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be with you this week in all the places that we are online to talk about the convention and hold everything loosely, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. 
Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Julie Haller, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.